Welcome to Who's Round, where another Doctor Who contributor is preserved for posterity, or, you could say, pickled in time. Manchester, so over a bottle of wine, I have met somebody for my latest Who's Round, so I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Hello, uh, my name is David Roden and I am the writer of Dimensions in Time. So, why and how? Oh my goodness, um, why did I end up writing? Oh, I was at university in Canterbury and um, I met John Nathan Turner there and he said to me, if you because he knew I was interested in writing, and he said, if you have any scripts that you want to send to me, send me those scripts. So I did, and that was, oh, God, like six, six, nine months before Dimensions in Time even even came up. And, um, and then suddenly, out of the blue, in I think it was either the June or the July of 1993, maybe the June, I just got this phone call at home in Canterbury, and it said, oh, hello, it's John. Hello, love, it's John. Um, would you... Would you like to um, write this Doctor Who story? Um, and my immediate reaction was, of course I bloody would. Absolutely, I would love to. Um, at that point, it was just one episode. I think it was one five-minute episode for Children in Need that year. Um, and, and the brief was basically, write whatever you want. So John gave me a couple of weeks to come up with some ideas and, um, and basically put them in writing and send them to him. So... So that's what I did, was I just sat down and thought, oh God, 30th anniversary of Doctor Who, what on earth am I going to write? And I think there, there, were, there, were several, there were several options. I think one of the options that I came up with first was just a, a, sort of effectively a short film. It was um, uh, Sylvester McCoy, uh, Nicholas Courtney, Cyberman thing, which I, I, I think they were, uh, the Brigadier and the Doctor were driving to a unit reunion and... Um, the car crashed and they ended up taking refuge in a deserted church which was attacked by the Cybermen and so I, John said oh that sounds very good, keep coming up with other ideas um, but can you do me a first draft of that script so I kept coming up with other ideas and I don't think actually really genuinely John knew what he wanted and I don't think the BBC knew what they wanted and certainly children in need were just giddy to have something, anything um, so I wrote the first draft of this script, which I've still got in my attic, um, in a, a packing case full of all the, all, all the various drafts of Dimensions in Time, plus tapes of the rushes and things like that. And, and I, so I wrote this, this script and gave it to John, and he read it, um, sat on his sofa in his house in broccoli, and he had a massive tumbler full of vodka topped up with a tiny bit of tango. And he read this script in about 10 minutes and went, this is really good, I really like it. It's far too expensive. We have about £20,000 to make this, this episode. We, can't, we couldn't, could never do it on that. So I was sent away to come up with some more ideas. Um, some of the other ideas that I came up with, there was, there was a Celestial Toymaker idea. There was, there was a, at that point, there was a chance that we could have filmed a Chessington World of Adventures because um, Gary Downey had already been assigned as the production manager for the show. And so 
I think between him and John, they'd been talking about what they would want to do, and I think occasionally sort of inviting me into the conversation. And, and one of the conversations had been that they'd go to Chessington. And, um, yeah, so there was this celestial toy maker idea, and I, I came up with an idea that, you know, he'd been plucking all the various doctors out of their time stream. But every time you, you do that story, it ends up just being like the five doctors, um, which I think is just the simplest way of doing that kind of story. So, um, so we had to try and find a different way of, of doing it. Um, and then with all various things going on at the BBC, um, we were told that we had to have EastEnders in it, because EastEnders wanted to do something for children in need. But at the time, they didn't want to do anything off their own back, but they were happy to contribute. So it, I was told it was a Doctor Who EastEnders mashup. Then John decided he wanted all the Doctors in it. Then EastEnders decided that they didn't want to be in it, so pulled out. Um, and all this time, I'm writing scripts for it. Then I was told by John we need as many monsters in it as possible um, because he got that because at the time the a lot of fans had bought all the costumes and there weren't many that the BBC had. Then it was can we have as many um, companions in in the show as possible? Um, and then EastEnders were back in um, because they'd been told off by somebody high up at the BBC that they shouldn't be messing around and it just went on and it was, things were in things were out then Sylvester McCoy couldn't do certain dates and we couldn't get all of them together on the same day um, and it just oh yeah and then Noel Noel Edmonds um, Noel's house party wanted a second episode so they offered us an amount of money whatever that was to write a second episode so it suddenly went from one five minute episode to a one seven minute episode and a five minute episode of Noel's house party and it just ballooned out of all, all realistic... Well, it just wasn't achievable as, as what it was. And, um, and I think, I have to say, I'm incredibly proud of having done it. I'm incredibly proud of having been involved with it. Um, I'm also deeply embarrassed by, by, by the end result. I mean, it is just, it is just a mess. Um, 20 years later, um, you know, I'm now working on Coronation Street and I've had 20 years uh, experience and 20 years learning. I, I would approach the whole thing in a completely different way. Um, and I, I, I think there's a, there's a degree of having been... <sighs> I wouldn't, wouldn't use the word bullet because I think that's too strong, but I was certainly pressured very heavily by JNT to do the things that he wanted to do. And he had less of a concern about story um, and, and more of a concern with spectacle and show. Um, and I don't, think there's, I don't think even he would have denied that. Um, and I was 22. Um, I'd never written anything professionally before. Um, there's only stuff I'd done at university. I was keen. I was stupid, and I did what I was told. Um, and I think, and that's what, and that's why I think John wanted to use a young writer who'd never done anything before, rather than uh, you know an experienced sort of Terence Dix or Andrew Carmel or Ben Aronovich kind of writer who's actually good. And he just he just chose this twenty-two-year-old moron who didn't know what he was doing. I do now. But what? Why, if he wasn't strong on the story himself? 
did he then want somebody he could, he could manipulate or, or control, rather than somebody who who would deliver something um, you know that he didn't have to then worry about? Um, I think, bless him. I, do you know what? It, even after you know, John being dead all these years, I'm still you know, I still have terribly fond memories of him. Um, but John, you know, like all of us, wasn't without his faults, and I think John liked being in charge and he liked being in control and one of the things that John really disliked was people saying no to him and um, and I just I, I just think he he wanted an easier life um, and he just wanted somebody who'd do what he you know, was told to do get on with it and don't argue and I think you know at 22 my first professional my first professional job was on Doctor Who for the BBC um, you know, I was giddy as a giddy thing, and it was, um, it, you know, it was a huge honour uh, to be asked, and it was a huge honour to do it. I just, I just, I just think John, I just think John liked being in charge. Bless him. Well, and it brought Frank Butcher into the into the Doctor <laughs> universe, which is no bad thing. Oh, but it was yes, it was wonderful. It was. It was is my... it the Mitchell brothers and Romana as well? Yeah, I mean, Mitchell brothers and Romana, and, and then there's 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 a, there's a shot where Adam Woodyatt, who plays Ian Beale, he walks through he walks through shot. He was desperate. He was desperate to be involved, and um, he got in touch with the production office, and he wasn't originally in it, and he just said, "I really want to, really want to make a contribution to it, and I'll do anything. I'll just walk through shot." So that's that's what he ended up doing. The 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 funniest one. For me, was was the inclusion of Wendy Richard, who was then playing Pauline Fowler, and so we'd got her in 1973 and 2013. Um, so obviously, she was dolled up to to look 20 years younger, and dolled up to made up to look 20 years older. And and God bless John Pertwee, who you know, at, at the best of times, was a little bit cantankerous. Um, and you know, was 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 a really interesting character, um, and he he just didn't bother reading the scripts, and so he went when he was at Elstree, he arrived and he knew Wendy was in it, and they were old mates, and he went round. He, I'm sorry, I'm just re- uh, just remembering the actual moment, but he he went round to her dressing room to say hello, Wendy, love. And he stuck his head around the dressing room door, and obviously she sat there in her 2013 makeup, looking as rough as rats. <laughs> and um, he, because he hadn't read the script, he just assumed she wasn't wearing any makeup, and that was just Wendy as she was. And he started talking to her, and eventually finally said to her, "Are you all right, Wendy, love? Because you're looking a bit rough." <laughs> and at which point Wendy Richards got, you know, incredibly cross and said, "I've got my bloody makeup on. I was 20 years older, you cheeky bastard." Um, anyway, so he got terribly embarrassed and disappeared off. Wendy then immediately came out and, st- and t- who was, she was old mates with JNT and told John this story that that. Because uh, JNT's nickname for Pertwee was Old Mother Pert. And um, so Wendy, Wendy came on to set and basically said, Old Mother Pert's just been in my dressing room and just said, you know, this to me, and cheeky bugger. And it was just, there were loads of things like that. And it was, it was honestly, it was just one of the most joyful experiences of, uh, of, 
my, of my life, you know, to, to be in that sort of environment with all these, you know, the, the sort of Mike Reeds, who's now dead, Wendy Richards, who's now dead, John Perley, who's, who's now dead, you know, people who are no longer with us, you know, and, you know, Carrie John, who was just a joy, Liz Sladen, bless her, you know, all those people who I met. And when I was later um, working at BBC Wales when they were making Series 4, of, uh, of, of Russell's Doctor Who and Liz Sladen was there um, you know the absolute joy of being able to walk onto the studio the studio floor and see Liz Sladen and you know have her sort of run up and you know throw her arms around me and say hello and because we'd got that history from from dimensions in time and it was, was wonderful so, so weirdly even though looking back the fusion of EastEnders and Doctor Who was a absolute disaster and a mess for me at the time um, it, it, was, it was huge fun to sort of see it happening but was it a disaster and a mess in the sense that I find with the because it's a children in need yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a, I have to say I find I, I remember when um, David Tennant's Doctor was introduced in that children in need mini episode I just thought oh, but if I wasn't a fan I would be baffled by that because it's a continuation because it's just this funny sort of Vignette. It doesn't seem children in needy to me. It just seems like mm. a little bit of Doctor Who that's invaded children in need. When you're doing children in need, you need a a, a bump, a something. It's like with comic relief, you need a mashup. So, and, and you know, time has taught us that sadly, dimensions of time now can't be canon because Pauline Fowler is dead uh, by 2013. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that. What, that it's not canon? It's, yeah. Oh, I couldn't care less. <laughs> I couldn't care less. But isn't it, what, didn't you have to do, therefore, something... And the idea of getting two iconic shows yeah, and flinging them together. Do, do, do you know what? It's, it's, it's one of those really weird things. Um, I, I, I suppose one of, the, one of the big things I wish I'd been able to do was write a proper Doctor Who of, of the classic series. Um, and that was sort of my only opportunity to do that. And so there's a bit of me that's sort of a bit grumpy that I didn't get the opportunity to do that. There's another bit of me that's incredibly proud. It raised so much money for charity, which is effectively... And it was it was not made to be canon. It was made to be a sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek... And you did what the five doctors didn't manage to do, so you got Tom Baker to be back in Doctor Who. I know, I love Tom. I love Tom. He gave me such a hard time, bless him, because <laughs> we, we'd, ri we'd written the whole script with him in, because he'd agreed originally to do the whole thing, and we sent him the script, and I got this, I got this really... Nowadays it would be considered an obscene phone call, um, but I got, I got this... <laughs> I got this... I got, I got this phone call from him um, basically saying, I've read this script, and he used a lot of words that I couldn't possibly use uh, on, on your podcast, but they involved dogs and their fecal matter. And they were basically, that was a description of what he thought of the script. So we, we, talk, we, we talked for ages about what he wanted from it, and, um, and he was terribly funny and terribly charming. Um, bless him, completely barking mad. And um, we then met in the ship in Wardour Street for many, many pints of, of lager, again to talk through it, and he got me completely trolled. Um, and I had a great afternoon, got no work done whatsoever, but just sat listening to him just tell me all sorts of filthy and obscene stories um, about, you know, about his life and about his career and about Doctor Who and various people who he'd met. Um, and um, I, he, was, he was just a joy. And I 
think because he and I had got on and enjoyed each other's company and had clicked, I, I think that and the JNT thing as well was why he eventually agreed to do something for it rather than pulling out completely. Um, and we got, we got a, John got a phone call in the Children in Need office basically saying, all right, I'll do something. I'll do an introduction for you, do a piece to camera. So get David to write something. So I, I wrote this, this speech for him, which, bearing in mind, this was the day before um, we were due to start filming. And he'd agreed to do it, but he kept, he kept turning down every bit of script. And I was on a train from somewhere, I can't remember where I was going from to, and uh, John phoned me and said, basically, by the time you get to Centre House, have a new piece of script, because Tom's turned it down again. And I just wrote this, this thing, and it, it wasn't quite on the back of a fag packet, but it was, it, was, it was the equivalent of. And I wrote this thing, and we got one of the secretaries in, in Centre House to type it up, and we faxed it through to Tom, and we didn't hear a word and that was the night before he, we were due to film his scene at uh, New Malton Studios and he turned up um, the next day and John was although he had this really cool exterior I could tell John was absolutely f***ing himself that Tom would either Tom would either turn up in a bad mood and just not do it or in fact whether Tom would turn up at all and he did, he turned up, the car picked him up, brought him there, and he arrived, and John had, hadn't even attempted to do the costume conversation with him yet. And it was, uh, which, which I'll tell you about in a moment, but, uh, and Tom turned up and he, he walked into the studio and he'd got this bit of faxed paper and it was covered, and I remember it was covered in green ink, and he'd, he'd rewritten the speech that I'd written for him, um, not massively, um, and he went, this is what I'm going to do. And then he performed it for John and myself in the middle of the studio with all these technicians standing around the, the outside, quiet as mice. Um, and he performed it. And it was, you know when you get those moments where your skin goes all sort of cold and crawly and all the hair stands up? It was one of those moments. And then, and then he finished it and he looked, at, he looked at John and he went, will that do? <laughs> and, and John went, that'll be marvellous, that'll be marvellous. Let's take you up to the dressing room. And um, as, he was, as he was leaving the studio, um, I, uh, Tom said, now what are we going to do about a frock, love? And they, they disappeared off. And what JNT had very cleverly done was rather than sort of phoning him up and saying, we want you to wear the costume, because Tom would have said no, um, John had just arranged for the costume to be hung on uh, um, coat hangers in his dressing room. So when Tom walked in, the, the whole, I think it was, it was his last year, it was they had a new costume, um, it was just hanging in his, in his dressing room, and he hadn't seen it for God knows how many years. And John wasn't in there, I wasn't in there, it was just the, the dresser was in there with Tom, and neither of us knew what he was going to do. And then the dresser came down and came straight over to John, and when he went into the dressing room and got all giddy, and John looked at him and went, what do you mean he got all giddy? And basically he just got a little bit emotional because his costume was there and he hadn't seen it for God knows how long. He'd, he'd had no intention of wearing it again. And it was just there. And within seconds of being in, in his dressing room, he'd got the coat on and the scarf on. 
And um, I mean, thankfully, thank God for JNT. I mean, a lot of people, you know, can be incredibly unkind about him, but one of the things he was very good very good at was, was dealing with people and he knew he was very insightful and he knew not how to manipulate people but he did know how to get the best out of them so we're all standing on the studio floor and then the next thing we know is the doors open to the studio and in walks Tom in full you know burgundy Tom Baker costume looking incredible and you could you could have heard a pin drop it was it was that was my first experience of of being in Doctor Who, of having something to do with Doctor Who, we're seeing Tom Baker walk onto the studio floor in, in full Doctor Who drag. And then he proceeded to be really grumpy and really bad-tempered for about two hours, but incredibly funny with it as well. Incredibly funny, which um, I'll, always, I'll always remember. There's one of the cameramen um, told him to move. I don't know, he, he was in the wrong, standing in the wrong place. One of the cameramen told him to move to another position and Tom being Tom you know didn't take very kindly to it and unleashed a blessing I probably would have done as well but unleashed a, a torrent of four letter words um, and the cameraman didn't give him any more directions anymore because clearly it's not a cameraman's job to you know direct an actor it's the director's job so but it was brilliant it was it was it was just one of those moments I will always always remember and you got the Brigadier and the Sixth Doctor together, so that Nicholas Courtney had done all the Doctors. Ah, oh, that, that, was, that was John's idea. I, I can take absolutely no credit for that at all, but J&T said, because um, uh, his nickname, because John had nicknames for everybody, his nickname for uh, Nicholas Courtney was Courtney Act. And um, <laughs> so he, he, he phoned me up when I was down in Canterbury and he said, now Courtney Act's going to do it. And, um, but what I've decided is, um, it, was Nick's, it was Nick's request, and um, Nick, Nick wants to do a, a scene with Colin, because he's not, he's not worked with Colin. So, um, so we're going, that's what you're going to do, you're going to write a Nick and Colin scene. So that's, that's what I did. But that, that day was, um, yeah, that, day was um, that day was absolutely fantastic, because it was, it was the Friday of the week of filming, so it was the last day of filming, and the sun was out. Um, and we were in the Royal Naval College in Greenwich, which is where they did Patriot Games, Les Miserables film. Um, and we had it for nothing, absolutely nothing, because it was children in need. Um, and we had this great big bloody helicopter there. And um, so Nick did all his scenes, and he was finished by lunchtime. And I love Nick. Nick and I got on extremely well, and I had a really good relationship with him. And it came to lunchtime, and we were supposed to go and eat uh, from the from the catering wagon, and um, Nick, still in full costume, um, grabbed me and said, "Should we go to the pub?" <laughs> and I went, "Too bloody right, I'm going to the pub." And he didn't bother getting changed. He and I walked down Greenwich High Street with him still dressed as the brigadier, and we went to the nearest pub. And we walked we walked into the pub, and it it wasn't deserted, but there weren't there weren't many people in it. And it was, it was one of those really bizarre moments that we, we walked in through the door and we went straight up to the bar. And the barman, who was a bit older than me at the time, um, and um, he, he just looked up, he clocked Nick, clearly knew immediately who he was, and didn't bat an eyelid. And Nick and I sat on the bar stools at the bar 
and um, the barman came over and he went, uh, so what do you want to drink, Brig? And um, Nick didn't bat an eyelid at all, and he went, I'm going to have a lager, and what do you want, David? And so I had a lager as well. Anyway, so, so that, was, that was my lunchtime, and the two of us sat in there, and we had, I don't know, three or four pints each over the lunch. Which you could do then. You could do then. There's a, it's really weird. There's a lot of weirdness about alcohol at lunchtimes now, certainly in this, this industry, which I sort of understand, and I sort of just find a little bit... But no, we had we had three or four pints, and I'll we please say you had five rounds rapid. <laughs> <laughs> oh god! So so Nick and I went to the pub. Here's, here's a new version of the story for you. Nick and I went to the pub at lunchtime, and we had five rounds rapid. Um, and then we went we went back to set, and it was only then that he he got out of his costume. Um, but he was, and he wasn't that he was desperate for a drink or anything like that. He just that was just Nick. He was he was a, a, an incredibly gentle lovely uh, lovely soul and um, and was just so into the character and I think he was so happy to have that uniform on again um, that he just I don't think he wanted to take it off so I got, I got that and we weren't it, we were in there for a lot longer than an hour's lunch and I got back and I'd missed Gent he was furious with me because I was supposed to be sort of sitting next to John with the script in my hand making sure that any queries the actors had I was there to answer and because I turned up not bladdered but pickled in time pickled in time (laughs) yeah absolutely I I came back pickled in time and they were in the middle of filming Sylvester and um, Louise Jameson's stuff Um, and John was like where have you been I've been in the pub with Nick he took me to the pub and of course you know because I was 22 and you know easily bullied especially where the pub was involved um, you know John let me off but for, for a moment you know he was really really cross with me but then he realised that I think he, to be honest I think Jane he was just really cheesed off that he hadn't gone to the pub with Nick um, but there you go so that's, 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 my, that's my Nick Courtney moment but I think Colin was quite pleased about it as well I think Colin was well chuffed that he'd had a, for the first time you know a scene with with the lovely Nick I really miss Nick Actually, I really miss him. He's, he's, a, he's a sad loss, but there you go. And you had for villains, you had um, the Rani and the, the the. I mean, he was people knew who he was then, but uh, now people more do. Say, you know, Sam West no slouch as a, as the non Doctor Who actor. Yeah. You got uh, you got uh, struck pretty lucky with Sam West. Ah, oh, I love Sam. He was amazing. Um, we were—I don't know how we got him. I think it's just because he was a, he's a, a big fan. Yeah, I think it was just—he was a massive fan, and we were so incredibly lucky. I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago, um, and um, I said to him, you know, I don't know how on earth we we managed to get you, uh, and he was just saying, oh, I just was desperate to do Doctor Who. He said, I've done anything to be on, on Doctor Who. So he was—he was brilliant, and Kate O'Mara was. Fantastic. She was as camp as I was going to say something rude then, but I can't say that. She was camp as a very camping tent made out of chiffon, um, and she was she was just brilliant. It was originally going to be, like I said, it was originally going to be Michael Goff, who John had done an availability check on, and he was free and would have been happy to do it, and then suddenly wasn't free for some reason. Whether he read the script and thought it was crap, I don't know. But he, he was free and then wasn't free. Then it was going to be Anthony Ainley. John wanted to use Anthony Ainley. And Anthony Ainley, I 
think was quite blunt in um, his refusal to take part. He just didn't want to have anything to do with it. I think it was more of a personal clash with John. Um, and um, it was then decided to ask Kate, um, and she agreed straight away to do it. Um, and the, 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 the day that we filmed Tom in New Malden Studio, Fountain Studios in New Malden, we did all the uh, Kate O'Mara and Sam West scenes, we did all those in one day. And um, there's a very funny, there's a very funny moment, because I've, I've got all these original Rushes tapes of everything that we filmed. Um, there's a very, very funny moment where uh, Kate O'Mara performs this one scene and there's, you know, there's the cut is called and the cameras are left running. And Gary Downey walks onto the set and lays his clipboard down on the TARDIS console and leans into Kate. And it's quite discreet for Gary, he was quite discreet about it, but clearly because Kate had a radio mic, you know, as well as the boom mics, picked up what Gary said to her. And what Gary said to her was, um, not too camp, dear. And um, Kate O'Mara's reaction immediately was, oh God, you know, I've been living under this misapprehension for all these years that, you know, this was a camp show I was in. And it was just, it's just one of those, it's just, you know, it's not the funniest thing on the face of the earth, but it's just one of those moments that, you know, I just, I, I would just remember very fondly about it was, it was just a very, very silly day. Actually, rather than just being silly, it was just joyful. That's, that's the one word I would use about the whole because we were only filming for four days on it. The whole thing was incredibly joyful. Um, there was no... There was no bad tension, or, there was no bad vibe between the actors. There was, there was a bit of a... There was a bit of a disagreement between John and the director, Stuart MacDonald, but that was, an, that was just a sort of subtextual undercurrent for the entire time. Um, they just didn't get on. Um, I think because John wanted to direct it himself. Stuart McDonald's very much a studio director as well, isn't he? Stuart McDonald is lovely and he's very talented, but that was he he'd never directed drama before and that was he was Children in Need's in-house director and Nick Handel had who was the I think exec producer of Children in Need had insisted that John used him. And John John quite frankly didn't want to use him and used used the fact that Stuart had never done any drama before as a as a, as a very large axe to grind um, against him and children in need. So the, the two of those never ever saw eye to eye and hit it off. Um, and John was obsessed with television, the rules of television grammar. You know, like um, things that, you know, you, for instance, I remember him saying, you can't cut from a moving track to a static shot and then back to a moving track, which, of course, in those days, um, it was sort of. I suppose you couldn't really do that. That wasn't the done thing in those. Nowadays, you can cut from whatever you like to whatever you like, and uh, you know that's just how TV is shot nowadays. It's much more eclectic and much more fast moving and fast cut. But in those days, it was it was more sedate, and you know shots tended to linger and everything tended to be shot wide. Um, but anyway, so John and John and Stewart just didn't get on. But uh, but my over other than that, my overwhelming you know memory of the whole the whole shoot was just utter joy. You know, you're standing on you're standing on set. You're standing in Albert Square, and Old Mother Pert, bless him, John Pert, would come up, and John Gentry said, "Oh, by the way, John, meet David. He's the writer." And and Pert, we told me off. Pert, we said, well, "You're responsible for this rubbish, are you?" 
and I remember, yes, and he said, well, in my day, we had a very good, we had a very good writer called Terence Dix, and he would never have let this rubbish um, go through to a script. And um, he said, I don't know, I've no idea what this is about, and I can't, I can't know my lines. And it's a, so I got told off by John Pertwee, which, under ordinary circumstances nowadays, like, you know, now I wouldn't let any actor tell me off set like that but because it was John Perry and it was my first professional job it was an absolute joy to be told <laughs> off by John Perry but the, 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 the funniest thing about it was he ended the telling off by telling me demanding that I went and got him a cup of tea milk with two sugars and that was how he finished the conversation go and get me a cup of tea I want milk two sugars and it's brilliant and I did I did <laughs> um, so I mean and bless him you know he he, did, he, he did struggle with his lines and we ended up filming there's, there's, there's one shot of him and the lovely Liz Sladen walking through uh, down Bridge Street um, in Albert Square um, and it's a long tracking shot um, and uh, we've got cue cards so somebody was at the side of the camera and these great big pieces of card with his dialogue all written on it and um, bless him as we were walking you know as we were filming the shot um, he was reading all his dialogue off these cue cards because he just, my, entirely my fault, had no idea what he was saying because the dialogue was so technical. It was, ex- it was exposition. It was just explaining what was going on in the story. Um, and it had no emotional content, so he clearly just couldn't get a grasp of it. Um, but it was really funny. We ended up, and he kept trying, even though he got you know, the lines on boards, and he, he, he just kept messing it up. And we ended up doing something like 14 or 15 takes of that one shot. And JNT always had this real suspicion of Doctor Who fans. And we had a fair few of them on the set that day because they'd provided all the monster costumes. And one of them, and I can't remember who it was, was standing quite close to the monitor, which John would have, JNT would have heartily disapproved of, a, you know, a fan sort of nudging his way so close to the production team but they did and what they noticed which nobody else noticed was that in every one of the 14 or 15 takes that we'd done up to that point um, John Pertwee had called Sarah Jane Liz he hadn't called her Sarah Jane in every take he called her Liz and um, this fan very meekly sort of said um, John I'd just to let you know, Mr. Pertwee said, Liz, every single one of those takes, not Sarah Jane. And JNT went, oh, don't talk nonsense, didn't do that. And we had a playback of the last couple of takes, and sure enough, not one of us had spot, so we had to do it again. And this time, I mean, you know, Pertwee got it absolutely spot on and did it first time. But thank God, actually, thank God for Doctor Who fans being there, because there wasn't a single person on that set who'd noticed and it does show you how you know the personality of you know the, the actor and the character sort of become enmeshed and dovetailed and you know everybody thought of Sarah Jane as Liz Layden uh, and, and um, yeah so there were, there were loads of little moments like that that were just loads of little moments like that that were just you know one thing just stick in my memory when you watch when you as a kid you watch this show and you know, John Pertwee is your hero, and then he turns into he turns into Tom Baker, and Tom Baker's your hero. 
you always worry that they're going to be a massive disappointment when you actually meet them. Um, and you know, and similarly with Peter Davison and Colin Baker and Sylvester, you you've seen them on the telly and these actors, and everybody knows that you know some actors can be tetchy and some actors can be grumpy and all the rest of it. And not one of them, and the companions included, not one of them was a was a disappointment. And it's it's very easy to have your you know sort of childhood illusions and images of people shattered and be left incredibly disappointed. And I'm sure some of them can be you know, grumpy and bad tempered sometimes as we all can. But they were all absolutely wonderful and it was so it was so nice to see them. Um, I remember Peter Davison doing some a moment in um, the, the garden in the centre of Albert Square and I think he'd got Nicola Bryant and Sarah Sutton with them. And bless bless Stuart MacDonald who was directing, who wasn't used to working with actors, he was used to working with presenters, and didn't really quite know how to talk to actors was giving them was giving them directions um, and again I, I found it only recently on my on these rushes tapes there's just this whole sequence of Peter Davison just utterly embarrassed and desperately trying not to laugh and Nicola Bryant clearly poking him in the side and Sarah Sutton giggling at the side because they're getting all these directions from from Stuart basically saying things like come on serious face now serious face which is not how you talk <laughs> bless Stuart he's, and he's brilliant at what he does he's brilliant as, as a sort of live studio director but at that point in his career you know working with actors wasn't his thing and I'm sure he'd admit that um, and I'm sure he's brilliant at it now but of course Peter and um, Sarah and Nicola just thought it was hilarious and were desperately trying not to giggle um, and we're failing miserably. I've got a confession to make. Do you know what my confession is? Go on. I voted for Big Ron. <laughs> well, I, I can probably send you the DVD that I've got with <laughs> with Big Ron on um, rather than Mandy. I can't remember what the, 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 the split was with the votes, but it was an overwhelming landslide. Well, I towards... don't understand. No, why? I don't understand. Because Mandy you see all the time, and Big Ron... It was always, for me at my house, it was always a joy when Big Ron got a line and a credit. Mm, absolutely. And everybody loved Ron Tarr, and he'd been in Doctor Who as well. He's in Destiny of the Daleks. Is that, yeah. is that the one he's in? Yeah. yeah, he'd been in Doctor Who. Because so, it was originally written, how it was originally written was with the Doctor Who thing in mind, that it was Big Ron who rescued um, Caroline John, or whatever character it was, who was being held hostage at the time in whatever version of the script it was. And it was Children in Need who came up with the idea of let's do a a vote and so we then had to find a another character who would do it so you know it was a case of who else on EastEnders wants to be in it and um, Nicholas Stapleton who played Mandy went oh I'll do it I'll come along and do it for you know nothing and in me lunch hour um, so that's what happened so it was always intended to be a big why role why did the public not vote for big role I've no idea I'm, I'm frankly ashamed of the public for you people shouldn't be allowed to vote um <laughs> Well, look, I've exceeded my time. We haven't touched upon the rest of your career. It's mad. So tell me. It's very, it's very boring. You said, you said, Doctor. You, I mean, before we started recording, you said that um, Dimension in Time opened doors for you, and that's really true. That's that's the case. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's been one of those weird things that um, every time I've been for a job interview, 
not quite every time, but pretty much I would say 90% of job interviews I've ever been to. I've got this credit on my CV that I did this, this Doctor Who story. And inevitably, somebody who's interviewing me is a Doctor Who fan. And whether they, whether they absolutely loathe the story with a passion and think it's the most embarrassing low moment of Doctor Who's history, or whether actually it's their first experience ever of Doctor Who, and as a six, seven, eight-year-old, that's the first time they ever saw the show, which actually you'd be surprised how many people do say that to me, it always gets talked about more than anything else you know I've worked with Derek Jarman I've done films I'm currently on Coronation Street I'm cash all those things I've done which I think are you know slightly more noteworthy but Doctor Who is the one that everybody wants to talk about I'm quite happy to talk about it very happy to talk about it um, and uh, indeed I'm, I'm sitting here in a in a restaurant in Manchester talking to you Toby enjoying lots and lots of lovely white wine talking about it so why wouldn't I want to keep remembering it but yeah it's, it's open door and I've got jobs as, as, on the back of it it's bizarre it's utterly bizarre I wouldn't have thought that something I did 20 years ago that was you know a footnote in my career and probably is a footnote in you know Doctor Who's history um, would actually still be being talked about now I'm sure you, you probably interview lots of people who worked on the you know, the classic series from the 60s who go, you're still wanting to talk to me about this show now? I'm sure everybody says that. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure till the day I die, I will probably be talking about Dimensions in Time and probably apologising <laughs> for it till the, day, till the day I die. But, you know, like I said, I, I have very mixed feelings about it. I'm very proud on one hand that I did it and very embarrassed on the other that it turned out the way it did and it wasn't better but do you know what we still did it we still raised a huge amount of money for um, for charity and it still got it got incredible viewing figures as well and I, I remember having a long discussion with, with Russell once outside of Neptune House at BBC Elstree um, he was having a cigarette waiting for a car to come and pick him up and he said something to me along the lines of I still hate you because you've got, you've got higher ratings than we ever did on the new series and we've still never beaten Dimensions in Time so you know that's, that's something I'm quite proud of yeah. really new Doctor Who has never beaten classic Doctor Who that's good that's good and um, so very quickly then you um we talk to you, I'm talking to you now, and you are a, a script editor on Coronation Street. But when we first contacted each other, you were directing Doctors, and of course you've written as well. So mm. which, I mean, you wear many hats. Which is the most comfortable? Oh, do, do you know it's, it's it's a weird thing. I I I always like to describe myself. I don't know whether I'm being modest or ju- I don't or just being stupid, selling myself down the river. I, I always think I'm a jack of all trades and master of none. But actually, I think all these skills all cross-fertilise each other. I think to be a good director, you've got to know how to work with actors, but you've also got to understand story. And I think to be a good script editor, you've got to understand story, but you also need to understand actors because you need to understand how things are performed and you need to understand production. So I don't see any of them as being mutually exclusive. I'm, to be honest, I'm quite happy. I, you know, I'm enjoying the career I'm having. I'm quite happy to go wherever, 
to do whatever job, um, I would have given my right arm to come and work on Coronation Street. I would quite have to be a runner on Coronation Street. It's such a, an iconic programme. Um, and it's, what, 52 years old now. Um, but, I, I mean, I love directing um, because it, I think it just involves all those different sort of elements. You know, I'm not the world's greatest writer. Um, you know, I'll admit that, and I'm quite happy to admit that. But I love people, and I love being around people. So being a director, I think, you know, uses all that story knowledge and all the script knowledge that I've got with, you know, with all the theatre stuff that I've done. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I should, I'll, I'll go back to directing at some point, um, and I'm sure I'll probably go back to script editing the year after when, I, when I'm fired as a director. I don't know. I don't know. It's it, it's huge fun. I just I just to me, it's actually about the program, um, and that's the most important thing. It's it's about it's about how good that program is, and you know what the position is available. And of course, you know we've all got to pay the mortgage. Yeah. Well, I don't know what you mean about being a jack-of-all-trades and master of none, said actor, writer, comedian, uh, radio presenter and podcaster Toby Hado. Um, uh, so, well, look, thank you for sharing your memories of Doctor Who. I have two questions that I uh, leave to the end. One is, what is your charity? My charity is the Mayhew Animal Home. And uh, Doctor Who is 50 years old, and that's weird to think that, therefore, we're talking 20 years after your involvement with the show. Um, so seems like yesterday. Um, Doctor Who's 50 years old this year. Uh, there are lots of Doctor Who fans out there. What is your message to them in this illustrious year? Oh, have a happy birthday and quite frankly enjoy it because you'll never see the 50th again. It's a one-off, one-off experience. Um, well, David Roden, thank you very much. It, my absolute pleasure. Honestly, it's been huge, huge fun, so thank you. Bless you. Cheers. That's great. That's all right. That's great. A long one that, didn't want to edit a word of it, so just time to say that the Mayhew.org, the Mayhew, M-A-Y-H-E-W, the Mayhew.org is the charity, and here's a plug for next time, and enjoy yourselves and don't hurt anyone, bye. I'm bored with a number of people who tell me Tom was hard work, I never found Tom hard work. He was just, just another actor. I mean, he, another actor playing a star role, but he was another actor. We didn't think too much in terms of stars in those days. And um, I got on with him well, and he didn't sort of intrude at all in me. So, um, just another guy. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Unit Extinction. Sam, have you heard of the Nestines? Who in unit hasn't? So that's what we're up against. There's an invasion on the way. One of their energy units has come down in the Gobi. It's imperative that you recover it and return it to London. If this is what we think it is, a swarm leader, it could hold valuable information on the Nestines' plans. How long have we got? The main body of Nestine spheres could reach the Earth within the next 24 hours. Bear in mind, you may not be alone. Because it went so far off course, it's unlikely the Nestines had anyone nearby, but they're bound to be looking for it. Big Finish. We love stories.